we are going to be uncovering some untold riches. Let's do this. Hey, welcome, friends and neighbors, all creatures great and small, to another episode of Untold Riches with Richard Bridges. Boom! That's me. And his co-host. You know, it's okay. Peyton Polychrones. We're here on behalf of BBS and Milestone Virtual Services to talk to Jeremy Treadwell, an entrepreneur in the area that Richard's going to talk a little bit more about that I have never met until right now. So as always, Richard will do the play-by-play. I'll be here for the color, and we'll talk a little bit more to our friend Jeremy. I'm so excited. I, I haven't known Jeremy much longer than you. We met at the uh, Avenel PGA Golf Tournament like maybe a month ago, and uh, we immediately became best friends and just talked about all things. And we had a meeting the other day. We talked for an hour, and it felt like a minute. Uh, so I'm very excited about where this uh, where this podcast goes today. Um, and he's one of the most interesting people you'll meet for sure. Just given how much he's done, what his interests are, how diverse and wide ranging the genres in which he is well versed on. It's incredible. I mean, a lot of the stuff went over my head, but in the way he presented it, I was still excited. I was like, I don't know what's happening, but I'm just excited about it. So without further ado, let's bring on Jeremy. He goes by JT with his friends. Super excited to have him with us today. Welcome, my friend. What's going on, gentlemen? How are you both? I'm doing great. Doing great. Better now. And I'm glad we got to lay the groundwork earlier in the week. Um, And I know this conversation can go many, many different ways. But why don't you introduce yourself to the world? Anyone who's maybe not familiar with you or your story, you kind of start where you think would be most relevant. And we'll pick up from there. and We'll run with it. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you both so much for having me. Uh, Richard, you have been indeed an instant best friend. I think we just have a kindred spirit and we can just vibe out all day on whatever or nothing at all. Uh, So my name is Jeremy Trouble. Yes, my friends mostly call me JT. I am a, gosh, technologist. I am a futurist. I am a all-around nerd. And at the core of who I am, I try to make sure that everyone is having the right digital experiences and ensuring that companies know how to navigate that, given that we're moving into such a technological space and time, is really important to make sure that I have a say and help other organizations uh, really sort that out. And I do have a philanthropic heart and I believe strongly in servant leadership. So I try to make sure that those I'm leading and those I'm surrounding myself with have that genuine curiosity and have the ability to help shape and mold others in the spirit that everyone's capable of achieving greatness this the only question is what is your vision and what how do i help you achieve that clarity to go after that vision Mm -hmm. interesting so now if you were to if you were to pare that down to give us an example of either one a scenario in which you feel you could step in and help or, or or a situation that you would be excited to be involved in a project or company or whatever um, and then ultimately, what it is that you do when helping these companies or doing the contract work that you do, what the end result would be and how a consumer might feel that. Absolutely. So I'll take this moment to do a shameless plug. My company is Treadwell Agency, and we are a human factors focused consultancy. Right, right there is in the t- title, human factors focused. So that means that I'll try to make sure from multiple perspectives, from your customers to your employees to your vendors, that everyone has having the proper experience. Um, one example of that could be a new internal HRIS system, understanding what the users need and what your employees need out of this system, right? Capturing that, cataloging that, 
and allowing that to actually drive what technology is selected as opposed to the alternative a lot of the times is just focus on the business requirements well the business needs to attract a b c d and e right from a metrics perspective but they aren't giving much thought to what custom what their customers or what their employees need out of this system right so me and my organization bring that into focus for a lot of organizations who maybe don't have the bandwidth to do so interesting so pretty targeted and what you're going to be doing for different companies could could it could be a pretty broad spectrum in terms of how you're like strategically imp implemented and helping them yeah i mean it, it, as far as who my customers are anyone who needs to develop a digital experience and they need to understand who their users are and what they would like their users to accomplish and conversely i help them the users understand what the business would like them to accomplish right mm -hmm. so it's a two-way street i like to look at it as the intersection of psychology and technology because ultimately i'm trying to help humans navigate digital systems so think about every website you go to is technically a labyrinth you don't know which way you're going to go you don't know the path to get to the specific detail that you're looking for so ultimately what i'm proposing is that my team comes in supports the organization when you're building your website or your digital product your application uh, whatever digital experience it is and whomever it's for we not only just look at the labyrinth, the technology that you're putting in place and the data and where you put things and how you organize the, you know, the layout, but we're also looking at, well, who's using this tool and what would behoove them to have at their fingertips. So it allows the company to rearrange the experience in order to best suit those intended to have that experience. But ultimately, as a technologist, I lean towards having and technology, we often call it predictive analytics, meaning that we have enough data to be able to foresee or foretell what the suspected group of users might do. Mm. So having that insight, I'm a proponent of having self-editing websites that if they have context to understand who's visiting it and what they're visiting for, the website should automatically be able to present relevant information to truncate the user's experience in a frustrating way and really, um, I guess, evangelize the products and services in a clear way Again, because you have this context and you have this information about who this known user is, you can then kind of serve on a silver platter all the information they might need to make a determined, to make a sale, to close the deal, to engage in that particular and you know purchase pattern. So you, you you and I were talking the other day, and you just mentioned it now, which I don't think I remember you touching on before, is like the psychology intersecting with the digital experience and. How, speak to because we kind of brought this up last yeah. when you and I were talking. Speak to like the difference between you and I having a conversation about kayaking, and then all of a sudden I get on Instagram and there's an ad for kayaks or REI or something, and somebody showing up on a website that you're kind of talking about, and then all of a sudden they get a very unique experience that someone else maybe visiting that website wouldn't get. So where do you see like at what point? is the line in, 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 in the psychology, because I know some people are apprehensive about having these, you know, being spoon fed stuff that maybe they are uncomfortable getting that as opposed to what everyone else might be seeing. Okay, so we can go several paths with this. So I'll start with what you're referencing is called re, retargeting or remarketing. There's W different ways, but typically retargeting is the, the primary term. So long story short, we are creatures of habit in human nature. So oftentimes Google has been our friend. We'll Google our deepest, darkest secrets, the things 
that this this bump that appeared on my leg that I don't know what it is, right? So, you know, our concerns, you know, asking about our credit scores, like we'll provide all this information to Google. And a lot of times it's mindless, like, oh, what, what about this, right? So best ways to spend um, your afternoon out hiking, right? And say there's an article about kayaking that you so happen to click on. Google has tracked all of this information and they're selling this information to anyone and everyone who's willing to listen. Same with Facebook. So as you engage in these seemingly mindless, um, almost errant digital experiences, right? You're not targeted. You're just kind of wandering around and looking for different things. As you click and engage, as you like post on Instagram or Facebook, all of that data is being tracked and mined and integrated. So what you click on and what you interact with trains the algorithm to show you similar because all of these systems are designed to capture your attention. So one of the things I teach in my course around user experience research is every product has a purpose. And what is the purpose of certain products is what you have to ask yourself. Mind you, I'm trying to take students who are sophomore through junior of college and can turn them from a consumer into a producer. So I have to have them analyze their current experiences to help them shape how they will produce other experiences as they grow in their careers. So with that being said, they're having an experience and they're being a target of this remarketing as opposed to now they have a cognizant perspective as to say, wait a minute, I'm clicking on these things. This is what's driving this algorithm. This is what the point is. So the point of social media is to garner your, all of your attention. The, the metric is stickiness, right? That's a metric yeah. we use in the business side of how long can I keep users engaged, enthralled in this particular experience? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok is a great example. So if you take a look at that stickiness and that metric that the business uses, the sole objective is to know enough about you is to show you constantly serve up relevant content. If I love cats playing with, you know, feathers and balls and lasers and I get into a, you know, ubiquitous scrolling <laughs> pattern, that's all it's going to show me because it knows that's what's going to garner my attention. Sure. So every business has to determine what's the intent of this digital experience. And social media has just cornered the market on attention. But because of that attention, they also can gather so much what they call dark data about humans. A lot of it is just really desperate pieces of data that have not been synthesized in a way that's meaningful. So when you take a look at those two data points and you understand where they sit, that is what allows us to get to the psychology of users. And a lot of times the whole pattern of creating sticky websites and creating um, addictive technology is known as a, as a couple of different things, but primarily is, is known as, um, Josh, the word just slipped my mind. We'll have to edit this part out. It's <laughs> data. Oh my gosh. What is it? Oh my goodness. So yeah. Yeah, it's all good. It, it'll come to you. Well, give me an example of dark data. Like what, what's an example of how like, you know, that term really stood out to me is so, so, so give me an example of what that might be like where someone yeah. where it can be misappropriated so dark data really consists of so okay if you ask someone a pointed question right that's not dark data so i have this information about you something you answered about yourself sure dark data is data that's not necessary so if you ask someone a question but they give you other clues they give you the way they answer the structure in which they answer so it's not a specific data point it's more of a behavioral data point that they can then glean and put together in other data sets to 
allow you and, and give more information about you. It reminds me a lot of that movie Ex Machina with Oscar yes. Isaac that came out a few years ago because that wasn't that like his whole character had designed the neural web of how people think yep. and stuff like that. And honestly, it's it's amazing because we talk about artificial intelligence and obviously we haven't reached, I guess, pure enlightenment in a digital age uh, like of an artificial intelligence yet. But what they can do in terms of because humans do this, I feel like naturally you get to know somebody you're vibing, you start to learn how they're going to react and things like that. But I guess your personality maybe affects it more. Is that part of your business that maybe you have to train out of people like to be more neutral? Because I feel like a computer, the advantage it has besides retention is that it is solely focused on its objective of manipulating you versus a person which has its own agenda that might not even be aligned with its own conscious agenda, a subconscious baggage, if you will, to use that term is going to drive the conversation, even if you have an objective. Like we're salespeople. And I talk to Richard a lot about, you know, presentation, we're coaches. So we have to constantly interact with people in a way that manages them and gets them toward their stated goal. But, you know, whether you had a fight with your wife or you had a great day this morning or whatever, you're always bringing that to the table. Do you find that technologically is that like as a service provider, can you leverage that technology to kind of get over that hump? Or is that a hurdle you have to get through before you use the technology? So it's actually both, both and. So the beautiful thing about the approach that we take, especially from a psychology standpoint, we always start with helping our customers develop their customer personas. Mm-hmm. So understanding who is the intended audience, right? A college student, a senior citizen. One of the examples I use in my, you know, my classes is a lame one. But if I'm developing a, um, a shoe brand called Cloud Walkers that's designed to keep elder, keep the elderly upright. Mm-hmm. I'm not marketing that to someone who's 25, 35, mm-hmm. 15, 20, or 55 plus. So a lot of times people don't often think about this. And that's a really clear example. Uh, and sometimes it gets murky, especially depending on the breadth of the product and different multi-generations and ethnic backgrounds and cultural and socioeconomic diversity, right? So there's a number of factors that play in this role. But if I'm developing Cloud Walker as a shoe brand, that's to go and, you know, help you stay upright. I have doctors, podiatrists behind it, right? I'm advertising that right when Golden Girls is on. I'm advertising that right in the middle of the night. I'm advertising that on in the senior, you know, senior citizen communities. I may have a rep team go out to the senior citizen community, you know, and build these relationships. You know, I'll advertise these in, at the AARP website. I'm advertising these via direct mail, right? I'm using the advertising methods that I know that, that audience engages in. All of that is data that can be purchased somewhere. So to answer your question, especially when you talk about AI and how we're integrating into that perspective, either way, regardless of the level of technology within a digital experience, AI or just a basic website, we still have to understand who's the intended audience and what information, what structure, what details will resonate with that user. So that's where user experience and user experience research comes in to develop those personas. And then we go on to help them shape that in user journeys to understand end to end from the very first time they hear about cloud walkers all the way through to the purchase right and you guys we call this life cycle right yeah. the customer life cycle we understand and you know i know richard you're in real estate as well so you have to understand your customer life cycle you have to understand the demographic if you're selling million dollar homes you're not advertising on a bus typically right you have to understand the lanes and the channels in which you market to will really in the biggest amount of fish. That's the whole point. That's one of the biggest struggles that most realtors and a lot of salespeople have is knowing your target audience and realizing you can either target a certain core group 
or you can go an inch deep and a mile wide and determining what is the more effective method. Some people are great at farming and they send it out to a thousand people and they just kind of garner what comes, you know, get little fish or big fish. And yeah. then others have a PTA group where they just mine referrals and they make a million bucks a year. Like it doesn't really matter as long as you're focused on your own particular goal. But I have a, okay, you're a fascinating guy. This is awesome. How did eight year old JT become you <laughs> like where did where did this come from? Were you the guy running multiple lemonade stands, making sure everyone had the right spigot, and setting up a drive-through to for credit card scanning? Like, how did this happen? Very very close to that. So I'm a second generation entrepreneur. So my father owned a print and design business on in Chicago, and it was very apparent to me early that my understanding that was always going to be my destiny, right? My inheritance. And the fascinating part about it is that I remember being 15 or 16 and a gentleman that my father had hired wasn't working out for the company. And I remember requesting to be the one to, I guess, relinquish him from this, from his post. And I walked him with him to the McDonald's, bought him lunch. We had a nice lunch. And on the walk back, I remember delivering the news. And of course he was crushed. Of course he wasn't expecting it. Um, you know, and it wasn't a full-time role. It wasn't anything formal. Like, there's no HR department. It's a small kind of mom and pop business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I remember like wanting to have these experiences, wanting to learn how to have the tough conversations. And you know, it happens throughout one's career. But being the son of the owner of the business, I you know, being present, being engaged, learning all aspects of the business, not just the technical, you know, the design and printing and all the folding stuff and knowing all of that stuff. But I want to know how to deal with people. I want to know how to engage with customers, understand how to respond to their frustrations or if they're having a hard time or explaining something, right? Creating visual tools and aids to support that space. So I honestly think I just got it honest as far as being an extrovert, being someone who enjoys communication. Um, I don't have a tough time with communication or, or tough topics. I think for me, it's how do I, and this again, the psychology side, which I didn't study psychology, but I really got fascinated by especially in digital experiences, but even outside of that, humans navigate their emotions. And a lot of the decisions we make, I think it's 95% emotion. And then we use other 5% to justify whatever we felt like we should do. And so honing into that and capturing that from a really from a tech perspective is really what got me going. But me being a person and a whole person that focuses on servant leadership, I try to make sure I'm in a space where I can support others. But that means I have to lead with empathy. That means I have to lead with curiosity. That means I have to be aware of cultural norms in a space that I'm genuinely inquisitive and I can disarm people. A lot of times, especially sales or just in general, extroverts scare people because they think they're, you know, snake oil salesmen. But I have to leave with genuine, genuine, you know, being me, being the authentic myself. And I think I've always just been that, you know, extroverted person. But I'm a, I'm a, I was a music nerd. I didn't I wasn't into technologies, you know, super young. I was a music nerd. I didn't play many sports. So I was this the popular in high school before. I just think it just evolved over time as I got to myself. Well, something you just mentioned about emotion versus kind of conscious thought really stuck out to me in relation to your business and the algorithms we were talking about before is because that really is the role of emotion, right? Like you said, most people don't sit there thinking about anything, right? They have the summation of their life's experience, whatever that is, sort of free will versus predestination. 
And it's like, what am I going to have at McDonald's? You already know you're getting the 2B. You want the bacon, no no onions. You know what you're getting, Peyton. Why are you looking at the menu? Or there's five bucks in your pocket. You're getting the McChicken and the fries, and you're hitting the road. These decisions are foregone conclusions. But the data is there, and then so you feel like you need to process it. But then your your heart wants what it wants. And that applies on writ large and writ small. I feel like technology serves to kind of distill those 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 larger little moments, the string, the string of pearls that make the necklace that is our psychology. And I, like you said, I noticed I don't have to Google more than one or two movies in a row before it knows I want the actresses and the actors and actresses, you know. And then once I Google John Cena, it's going to give me his height and weight because that's what I always look for next, you know, or whatever. You know, it's like it's going to send me to where I want to go. I'm not into cats, but it knows I kind of like cats. You know what I mean? It's going to send me every once in a while a couple of cat videos when it looks like I'm bored with the dumb stuff I've been looking at. Now, is it is there a causal loop there? Is it an Ouroboros of just eating its own tail? Or is there a starting place for this technology? Like, is my five-year-old son already an algorithm? Or is there a way to manipulate that to your own advantage? So I'll speak about that in from two perspectives. Yes, you can absolutely manipulate that because I truly believe that Instagram and Facebook believe I am a very wealthy Middle Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> Advertising that I see are for Rollies and Bentley private residences in that are just being built in Miami. And I love it. I engage, I click, I subscribe, I put all my information in, and I get getting calls regularly because there's a, a new um, St. Regis Tower because I stayed at St. Regis, and there's a new Bentley Tower that's both being built in Miami, which I love Miami. So they have all these data, like again, separate data points. You know, okay, stayed at St. Regis, loves watches you know, enjoys travel. So those are the ads that I see. So you can absolutely engage and you can certainly change the algorithm and how you're viewed by these tools. I get advertisements all the time. You know, you should really sign up for our private jet, you know, experience. And it's really cheaper than you might think. It's not expensive at all. And you show pictures of their family on the, you know, and I see a lot of Middle Eastern content and whatnot. And it's like, this is absolutely fascinating to me. Because of what I engage in, they're making some assumptions, mm-hmm. you know, ethnicity-wise, you know, socioeconomic-wise. And as much as I would love to buy the jet and, you know, <laughs> I looked into the Bentley private residences, it starts at um, 2.9. I was like, man, it was like 1.5, 1.7. I might be able to swing 10% down now, and it won't be built. So my mind is already <laughs> racing about the art of the possible. But I will take that and take a step back, right? That's only possible because of my personality. I've always been the person to, with $5, still go to a Gucci store or a Louis store or walk around the mall and and absolutely believe that I should be there and knowing that one day I will purchase these items, right? Knowing that I'm training myself to have what I want by being in the place where it exists. Yeah. But that's yeah, a personality. That's an inspirational algorithm. <laughs> so that, right. But again, that can't be reflected in algorithms, right? Because it's all in the present here and now. So it's... You know, as a Christian, it's kind of like this manifest destiny type of thing. You know, like um, always on top, always a lender, never the borrower, right? That type of mindset I have because of my faith, that's reflected in my personality of being altruistic, being, you know, hyper optimistic and having someone who doesn't believe in, I guess, the stigma of money, right? Being a negative connotation, right? There are a lot of people who may feel that way. So they shy away from having nice things or saying they want nice things because it seems self-serving. I believe if God wants me to be extremely wealthy, and I believe that is the case, then I have a responsibility to bestow that blessing upon others and to be a fount 
to bless others. So that allows me to go into these spaces and do these things and be present in spaces that I typically otherwise, especially without that personality trait, could exist in, knowing that I don't have, you know, I think it was the other one, the other, the Bentley building started at like 5 million. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> not quite there yet. Uh, one example of that is uh, Christine's, the auction house. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of um, Basquiat, uh, the, the painter from the 60s, 70s, who's a huge contemporary of um, Andy Warhol. And I follow the Abbey um, auctions that they put out. And so just so happened in the advertisement, they had a Basquiat that's coming up for auction just passed. And it was fascinating to me. I was like, oh, I really want to, you know, I'm scrolling through the list, right? They have Birkins and, you know, vintage Rolexes and, you know, vintage watches and luxury jewelry, things of this nature. I'm just scrolling. Well, this isn't too bad of a price. I can look at like, again, extreme optimism. And I see the Basquiat and underneath it, it says in, you know, email for inquiry. What do I do? You send an email. I sent an email. <laughs> and most that is intended to be a delimiter. You wouldn't say that unless you don't need to know this price unless you can afford it. Like that is intentionally done because everything else is saying 10, 20, 30, 50 grand, 150 grand. Like this shows all these different art prices, but apparently within their algorithm, they've determined a threshold that says only if you can afford this, should you even inquire about the price. Mm. And to me, that is what's called a nudge. So there's a whole book about nudge theory. Peter Thiel is an amazing author. He mm. talks about this and the way you order information and structure options for people in the real world or digital shape how they do it. Um, and the best example they give of this is if you're in a cafeteria and you know, it's very linear in that space, it's pizza first or salad first. If you get the pizza first, we're gonna get the pizza, right? They're hungry, they're coming in fresh. Oh, I'm starving, let's eat pizza, right? As opposed to putting the salad first and then following it with other items. Oh, salad, people will probably opt to get the salad first because it's the first thing they see, they're hungry. So that information ordering or architecture is incredibly important. So understanding that that, that nudge that Christine's has in place to say, well, you know, only email of, you know, email for inquiry. So of course I click, of course I email. Lady's very nice. She responds, you know, in a day or two. And she says, hey, yes, thank you so much for reaching out. We expect this piece to sell for about 30 million. And I can have my associate send you, you know, more details, dimensions, et cetera. And I said, yes, please send me the dimension details, et cetera. Because I need to measure where this is going to go in my next house when I have a space. <laughs> and mind you, it's for me, it's not just I want the Basquiat piece to, you know, have bragging rights, right? It's, I appreciate the art. I appreciate the, the context of what it means. And as an African-American artist, I really value having that type of imagery in my home. And I have a couple of prints that I got at MoMA as well. So, you know, the, it's a true uh, value of mine. And of course, the guy emails, he follows up, he shows pictures of it in the mentions. And then I go to my wife and I tell her about this whole experience. And for me, what that says to me is, okay, I have about five years to work to the point that I have a home and a family and cars and then the financial liquidity to have a Basquiat piece in the home. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't want to have, you know, this house, you know, that's not, you know, the house has to be much greater than the painting, right? You don't <laughs> want a $30 million painting in a house that's cost a million or 1.5, right? You want the house that's going to fit the whole life. You don't, I don't want to live disproportionately you know, and people are buying this huge house and then be house poor, right? No, I'm expanding my mental capacity to say, if this is one aspect of what I want, 
that means my entire dream has to get bigger. My entire mm-hmm. consciousness needs to get bigger. My entire understanding of the realm of financial possibility needs to get bigger to support this one small nugget, small piece of that dream. Yeah, well, keep this because if you buy a $30 million painting and you put it in a million dollar home in Northern Virginia and you post it on social media, this is your evidence that I am the one who robbed you. Okay, because that is going to happen. <laughs> you better be on an island, my friend, with a, with a, <laughs> all around a full moat. Exactly. And gators in there. Exactly. You know, down in Miami, yeah. It's awesome. Uh, you know, it's something that they, they say a lot, right? And a lot of the things that I've researched and studied over the years and a ton of the things that I read is just like, the most successful people typically by the matrix metrics that we measure, which is, you know, net worth mm-hmm. think differently. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like the big thing. And there's a book and it's called um, the magic of thinking big. Mm-hmm. And it like, as you were talking and describing this for me, like this experience and like this vision you have, and you're like, all right, I got my five-year plan and it's going to be there. You obviously don't struggle with thinking big. So what is your big, tell me a little bit more about like, what is, when you're stopping and you're thinking, you're like, where do I want to be in a year, five years, 10 years? These are things that typically folks struggle with being able to envision. It doesn't seem like that's an issue for you at all. What are those things? Where do you want to be? What's your big? So, oh my goodness. I want to fundamentally change the way business works, primarily in America, but, but globally as well. For me, I have so many friends and relatives who have great business ideas and don't have a drop of a clue of where to begin right they don't have that skill set and so for me i'm extremely passionate about that philanthropic arm of and it's a combination of philanthropy and venture capitalism Um, and i think that's why i've kind of come up with the moniker for myself as a vision capitalist my role and my responsibility on this earth is to really help others build what they need to build um this all comes from a story in the Bible about Nehemiah. So the book of Nehemiah is a really, really easy story. Um, he's a cupbearer to the king, right? So he is nobody ostensibly. He's just in the castle, taste testing things. If he, if he dies, then the king doesn't drink it, right? So very, you know, auspicious role. Solid right? job. <laughs> right? Like that's a lot. That's a job security right there. No. Um, but his brothers come to him and tell him that his hometown of Jerusalem is in ruins, completely dilapidated, there is no wall. And in the previous book of the Bible, Ezra had led, the city had been abandoned and deserted, the other king's runner had destroyed it, and Ezra had led like 5,000 people back to the city. And they're trying to assemble things, but the walls of the city, their protection, again, is just dilapidated, non-existent, they have no protection from any outside force, that wishes to do ill upon them. And so with that being said, he immediately becomes distraught, cries and prays, and God gives him a vision to go back home to rebuild the walls. Of course, he talks to his king. He's, he's been a loyal and faithful servant to the king. So the king gives him, one, resources. He gives them wood, you know, all the stuff they were using to build, you know, brick. All, they were giving everything they need from a resource perspective. He just gave it to him, to Nehemiah. And then he also gave him a letter because you have to pass through several kingdoms to get to where he was going. And the the letter was just kind of clarifying his role, his purpose and signed by, you know, the king. And so he starts on this quest. He goes home. um, He meets with the people and there are 12 gates to the city. And he has now, mind you, this guy is an architecture. He is not a general contractor. He's never done anything like this before, but he has a vision. And he's able to go and execute into that vision because he's given the resources 
and he's been given the authority to do this. So he comes in, kind of like acts like a uh, governor, if you will. And the most fascinating thing about this is that, of course, he starts to rile up the people about rebuilding their home. Like, this is your home. You should have pride in it. And we should be protected against any, you know, onslaught from the enemy. So what happens is, of course, the 12 gates, he has the people, men, women, and children, start to build the wall that's closest to their homes. And this is the point that stood out most to me. Because if I'm building a piece of the wall that's far away from where I live, I might be tempted to be a little less passionate about how secure it is and how well constructed it is. Again, these people aren't construction. <laughs> they don't do this for a living. There's no farm you can hire to come just do this stuff in money, right? These person has to build and set these stones brick by brick for their home. Now, he's doing this, and in the midst of this, the surrounding kings become jealous. They don't want Jerusalem to be withstanding. They don't want it to be a, be a beacon to um, you know, God and, and how they were structuring the city. And so they start to send open letters, which means they don't seal the letter. So every hand, it pa- every hand it passes through is able to read this letter. It's almost like a gossip or tabloid back in the day. It's like, well, ooh, they don't want, ooh. They're... So they start to call Nehemiah out and say, hey, come meet us in the field. Come meet us over here. Come do this and come do that. And really what stood out to me is that Nehemiah's response to them is like, why would I stop the work that myself and my people are doing? To come meet you when I know your intentions. When I know you have ill will towards me, you have no reason, you have no reason to want this to succeed. So what's the point of meeting with you? I'm going to finish my task and support my home and my community. And so ultimately he is successful. They built the tower, right? They built the, the walls, every gate is in place. Um, and then they are able to start, you know, building the temple and start worshiping God and doing all that kind of stuff. So the story goes on, but that really spoke to me from a standpoint of you have to have vision and you have to be able to go after that vision with clarity, resources, authority, and be able to drive what you have and what God has placed in you into, into the physical realm and manifest that even when it seems unlikely, even when you don't have the background or experiences. That's what I love about the story. And I believe that um, that is how I will be able to manifest change into this world from a business standpoint from a you know serving standpoint, and so on. That was so. Yeah, yeah. this guy's a storyteller. Yeah. That's why I told you he needed to be on. He needed yeah. to be on. So okay. a couple things. I was just like, like the. <laughs> what is your Jerusalem as a business owner? Like yeah. you don't have to drop names or anything like that, but yeah, what is one of your biggest successes where you had the vision? Somebody had the will. And you help guide them to a greater success that, that moved you and made you feel like maybe you could do this or just your highest high or lowest low. Yeah, no. So for me, um, as you know, I build digital experiences and a client brought me into build a digital experience, right? Had a team doing the work. Um, but I started inquiring about their analysis of the digital experience and how they were able to track the success of their platform. Um, and, a, and a sister platform that was already launched that they were using in the, in the marketplace. And they didn't have any such, you know, analytics platform. Mm-hmm. So I took it upon myself to develop a, an additional p- proposal, a pitch for their organization in order to be able to instantiate these metrics and controls by which their product team could then assess and analyze the quality of the experiences and then start to shift and pivot, right? They would have a base point for future iterations of this product that was in the marketplace. So they greenlit the project and we were able to 
we have to go line by line, pretty much of code, every button, every action, every system integrated into this platform. This is a B2B platform mm-hmm. uh, needed to be reevaluated and be integrated into the system so the data could be captured. So we signed the contracts, got some vendors that did the data points, signed some other things to get everything in place. And we built this great platform. And so, of course, as, as a one off, I felt very, very proud because I hadn't done what they call product intelligence at that point in my career. But even more so, I firmly believe that the experiences like that allow you to create methodologies. So from that, I was actually able to drive what I call or IXD squared intelligent experience delivery. And I've created a maturity graph to explain and articulate the different levels of analytics from within your product experience. And then started to articulate a, a model for what I referenced earlier, the self-editing websites. As an example, the goal is to truncate um, pain points for customers. That's what we use in the industry, right? Any friction between the customer and the system, right? If I'm trying to log into Facebook, I've logged in, tried to log in twice, right? Typically three times is the max they lock you out. But what if we were to change that narrative? If because of the dark data they have, they have my IP address, they know that the exact same MAC address computer that I'm using, right? I'm on the same network. I'm in the same place geographically. There's additional data that can be used to authenticate users. And of course, I'm not a security expert, but in theory, having these additional data points along with two-factor authentication, if after my first failed attempt, Facebook should be able to text me a temporary password mm-hmm. and I should be able to use that to get into the site, right? So looking at the pain points that we typically view um, that as barriers to entry for, dis- for different digital platforms, I believe that we should arrive at the point, whether it's AI driven or any other technology, to be able to truncate these pain points for users and really be able to serve quality content that really drives the user towards their intended goal without them having to wander aimlessly around the digital experience. So it becomes pointed, it becomes more controlled. And so to your point, that to me was a huge win. Not only was I able to deliver that for a client, I was then able to build, to build a methodology that I can then articulate to other clients and say, hey, here's a maturity graph of how you can progress and scale moving from you know analog or barely any analytics to your platform to predictive analytics so you can actually start to see which of your customer personas are having the most difficult time with your platform and mm-hmm. how might we build an integrated system that might smartly detect these users and shift the entire um, really nomenclature and how we do digital business. That's fascinating. So it's like, it seems to me like you, you built your wall and you built your gate, but you found a way to build a better gate. Yes. And now you kind of want to Nehemiah Appleseed around the world and kind of just <laughs> drop better gates at everybody else's business. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Anything that saves me having to type in my full email with my, my TV remote to log into Disney plus. Yes. I mean, we're using QR codes. We're getting smarter in that. Space. Right. That's it. That's exactly what I mean. Right. The, you know, enter your passcode, you know, Apple TV. I'm very surprised at them for having to enter your full Apple password mm-hmm. as opposed to establishing a code similar to how um, Prime did it or a QR code similar. I think it's Hulu or someone else does it in that in that fashion. So, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's not bank. those pain points for users to get at the goal even quicker. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Amazon really figured it out because, like, you know. During a pandemic, you drink some wine, you know, and then you get on Prime and then boxes start showing up. Like it's <laughs> so like one quick, one click buy. It's like, that looks awesome. Buy no cart, no yes. nothing. One yes. click, that is now at your house. Like well, it's. But that was all based on user research. 
So they've done yeah. research enough to know if it goes into your cart, that's the dying place of, of a list of things. I mean, if I go to my Amazon cart, I have my wife and I share, and we probably like 10 items in the cart at the moment and we try to assess and then pull the trigger. But then there's a litany of like 50 to 100 things that have been moved from the cart to a buy later list. Mm -hmm. And I think they've recognized that as a death cycle of products because then you have a moment to think and say, hey, do I really need this clip that I can put my vine and the plant in the clip to go up the wall? Like, Do I really need this one gadget? No, most times you don't. So those impulse buys, they've learned that if you make it, oh, this looks really cool. Click, buy, shit, done. Much easier. But that's all yeah, my daughter drives my wife nuts because she is in our she gets in our Amazon. She's not allowed to buy anything, but she has the login because it's like the same thing as Amazon Prime, like the show for like shows and stuff. So she'll log in and my wife will get in there and be like, I'm gonna order something that we actually need. And there's 30 things in the cart that my daughter's just like, you know, just in case you guys want to buy it for me. It's just it's ready for you. It's in the cart. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, she's, she's figured it out. She's figured it out. We don't buy them for her, but like, you know, it does make Christmas and birthdays a little bit easier. Exactly. Well, large beyond the prime thing is you look at Amazon as a company. I mean, I learned just a few years ago that like the, the server space is how they make a lot of their money, right? Like that's yeah. where they get the most of their wealth. It's basically yeah. a loss leading PR campaign. So nobody can complain about Jeff Bezos and their business practices, right? We all love what they're selling. So we don't look too hard behind the curtain. You know, it's like the wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's like the Emerald city is gorgeous. Just enjoy the view. But in the Emerald city in the book, they all wear green glasses. The city is actually a regular city, and you have to s- literally lock on a green pair of spectacles so it appears to be what they want you to think it is. But isn't that what we do every day when we open TikTok and when we open, you know, we're, we're all wearing our rose-colored glasses, and they're different shades of the world. Like, mm-hmm. I hate, you know, I don't want to be too touchy here, but all of these mass shootings that we're having in the last few months, we all have on different colored glasses depending on our backgrounds, our socioeconomic status, our perspectives, and our you know, political belief systems, and one group is yelling, oh, it's not the guns, people kill people, people, not guns. They have on a certain color glasses, and the other part of the world is like, no, guns are killing people, yes, mental health is still an issue, both are issues, Right. (laughs) remediate both. And then you have other people saying, well, it's it's not a state issue, it's not a federal issue, like, there's always, everyone has their own colored glasses on, and I think that's why we end up talking so much about diversity, inclusion, bias, equity, all these different systems trying to create a system of moving from a golden rule to a platinum rule. And that's really hard to do because I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Microsoft bot that came out a few years ago on Twitter. It immediately picked up on the worst habits and started cursing out everybody on Twitter. And they had to shut it down twice because this tool if given the full spectrum of the human experience. Wait, wait, give us background. Give us background on it because yeah. I'm fascinated now and I don't know what it was. So what was this bot? Okay, hold on. I have to Google the name of it. Uh, it, it bombed horribly. While you really quick, it's what you mentioned about the, the shootings and things like that, and we also talked about the AI and like the inclusion of your subconscious and some of your experience and your, your own user experience interacting in the real world with real people. I feel like as a country, we have a certain identity. You can target other countries that are developed in similar ways but with similar su- different subcultures and go, well, they're doing this, this, and this, and they don't have this problem, right. but we can't seemingly connect with those solutions because at like any person-to-person interaction – we bring our own background to that interact. We can't push past and open the gate as effectively as we might want to. Our user experience as a nation isn't 
guiding us toward what we really necessarily need. And personally, 10 years ago, I was a bachelor and school shootings were a tragedy. Now I have a six-year-old first grader and I'm fucking terrified. Yes. I mean, and they can't make it change. Yep. You know, experience has changed along with it. So one example of that, a story I love to tell, um, a husband and wife were, you know, wife was preparing dinner and husband was, was watching and she was slicing the chicken and she sliced the wings off the whole chicken. And then she, you know, seasoned it and put it in the uh, container and put it in the oven. And he asked her, said, hey, wife, why do you cut the wings off the chicken, you know, and put it and cook it that way? And she said, you know what? I'm really not sure. That's the way I saw my mom do it. And so next time they had a family gathering, the, you know, w- husband and wife asked the mom, said, hey, mom, why do you cut the wings off the chicken when we're making the chicken? Just out of curiosity. And she said, you know what? I'm not too sure. That's the way I saw my mother do it. Mm-hmm. So they go to granny and say, hey, granny, why, why do you cut the wings off the chicken when you put it in the oven? She said, oh, because they wouldn't fit in the pan. <laughs> so we're patterns, you know, we're taught certain patterns. We're taught certain methodologies of doing certain things. And a lot of times we aren't taught the critical thinking skills to assess and analyze why those things are done or why they were done the way when they were done. Right. Sometimes that context isn't shared. And so that is a huge part of our digital experiences, but more importantly, in our just human experience. A lot of times we do certain things that have rituals that, you know, and other cultures may not understand those rituals, um, that a lot of times they get lost in translation or it's not clear, uh, different cultural, different ethnic, different age groups, right? They all have different ways of thinking and doing things. And I think that's where we get into this twisted space, one, trying to understand each other, let alone trying to represent something in a digital space mm-hmm. and having others perceive that and receive it the way that it was intended to be communicated. Oh, and I found it, Tay, T-A-Y, it was Microsoft AI Twitter bot, and it went online for a day, less than a day, and it was, <laughs> it came across a barrage of racist and sexist tweets, and then it just started spewing, spewing vile on Twitter, <laughs> and they had to shut it down. Then yeah. they recalibrated it and tried it again and shut it down again because they had access to retweets and consume what other people were saying to learn from other humans and their experience. And of course, it just went down downhill from there. Little minor bird just going. So in her- less than a day, a AI bot became a racist and sexist just <laughs> by reading the vitriol that we put out into the Twitter space. I can see why Elon Musk is doubling down on that thing. Right. It makes a strong case for Ultron, right? Just finding out what the contents of the internet are and deciding to drop a rock on it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. All right. So we're coming down. We've got about 10 minutes left. One of the things you touched on earlier, don't know if a lot of people are familiar with it. Something you and I talked about. So futurist, your self-described futurist. Tell us a little bit about what that is, what it means, and how that is applied to your life. Perfect. My favorite subject. So I am a certified futurist. There's an organization in California called the Institute of the Future. They've created this training and a certification um, for the whole objective is to help and really understand drivers of change for up to 10 years into the future. So the most beautiful thing about this is it really goes back to a psychological principle. It's not if I'm not mistaken, the hippocampus is what connects in your brain your current self to your future self. And that is a very innately weak connection. A lot of people don't know how to think about themselves or envision themselves in the future. One year, five years, 10 years, God forbid, even further than that. 
But that is a skill. And if you don't feel connected to your future self either. It's like you don't think about your current actions and behaviors in correlation to what that could amount to over years. Mm-hmm. So it's beyond just you don't feel a connection. It's you have no idea how to even fathom who that person is, what they'll have, what they'll do. It's just a very weak connection. The beautiful thing about it is, is that that particular skill set can be strengthened and that your brain can be trained to think of yourself in future contexts and understand the impacts of your behaviors as well. So futurism really is a, not a personal psychology thing, but it's more of a corporate psychology thing because where it typically focuses is the future of work, the future of cybersecurity, the future of any given industry. And so what I'm trained to do and what I help organizations do is leverage foresight by data analysis, understanding trends in humans and otherwise, in order to capture what's changing in the industry. I think of um, taxis and Uber as an example. Mm -hmm. A futurist might have been able to foresee, well, technology might allow people to connect with each other and give each other rides. So you may not need a taxi anymore, right? The whole economy, sharing economy, or the gig economy, right? There's all these different ways of working now that weren't fathomed 20, 30 years ago. And so many organizations are disrupted daily, right? And they say, you know, disruption is a constant or is guaranteed. Yes, that's very true because as Domino's is no longer a food company, they're a technology company because they learned that in order for them to thrive and be successful, the pizza's good. Nobody's arguing that. But the fact that I can get it in 30 minutes, there's an app, they know my order, they know my history, I get points. All of this stuff and platforms that they've built to be globally supported. And they're using self-driving bots to deliver the pizzas now in certain areas and Amazon using drones. So exploring what could come in the future. And one of my favorite quotes around future is that futurism is that the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Mm. I love that quote because it does imply that there are drivers and signals of change currently employed in different cultures, different communities, globally. And the only way for you to really harness that is to have a foresight leader in your organization that's focused on doing R&D on different signals that they're finding in the marketplace. Now, um, the Institute of the Future does have a tool for this. It's called Vantage Pro or something like that. And they allow companies to subscribe to this to gather those signals because they're putting a database of signals and then companies can research and see what's relevant to them and then pilot R&D efforts around that to see if it's going to be, you know, a sustainer for the business. But other industries, if you don't have that and then you then you're liable to be blindsided by a huge shift in the in the technology world that you didn't have a clue of seeing coming. So that's what futurism is all about. I'm very excited about the future and helping people envision that for themselves personally, right? To the, to the Nehemiah um, project, which I guess I'll write that down and make that a thing. Um, <laughs> the whole vision yes. uh, yeah. notion, um, you know, and I do see myself in, in venture capitalism in the near future, but I want to really pull, pivot. So it's not just about the vision. It's about, I'm sorry, venture. It's about the vision. And I think that's incredibly important. Well, you don't think yeah. to build a wall unless you see the enemy. You know what I mean? Unless you can foresee, yep, that coming right. from, you know, a good example. My dad, like your dad, uh, ran, runs a small business, a flower shop in Northern Virginia. Yep. I remember about 15 years ago or so, some company in Texas bought up a phone number. Nobody had ever thought to buy 800 flowers. And suddenly we were in bed with this company in Texas because they were getting everybody calling them. And like nobody in the history of telephones and flowers thought 800 flowers was a good phone number. Yeah. It was this watershed moment. 
that changed the industry and took 20 years for them to figure out how to really integrate a small business into that with mutual compensation that made sense and see it as the marketing company it was and the order gatherer and then but still adjust the way you do business. You know what I mean? And it was a huge, huge disrupting, uh, disruptive influence in that industry nationwide. Absolutely. Um, you said Uber. I was at Comic-Con like seven or eight, maybe 10 years ago now. And I remember somebody like, you know, cute girls and guys giving out sunglasses and said Uber. And I'm sitting there with them trying to explain what this was. They're like, oh, it's a ride share thing where like you go on your phone. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? It all sounds so forlorn to start. Yeah. It all sounds like a foreign language. It doesn't make much sense. But now it's ubiquitous. We trust it. It's not yeah. a concern. Like you, they have policies. They, you know, of course, there's been horrendous you know, things that have happened, but as a platform and as an industry, it's nothing but a product. It's an app. Mm-hmm. Like it's not anything substantive. They don't own any cars. They don't own any, you know, the, so the future of technology and automation really isn't about ownership. We people, all these companies that have all these physical brick and mortar stores and they're Uber and Lyft and all the other Snapchat can come along and have billions of users and not even a physical office. And they're so operating I mean, in the metaverse. Well, I want to talk to you at some point off the off the pod about where you think the real estate industry might be heading in the next 10 years, because that could be useful information. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, JT, you are making a solid, compelling argument yeah. for the necessity of a new type of CFO. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, the, the chief futurist yes. uh, operating, uh, you know, operator or whatever, or executive, whatever, what, CFO, whatever the, the O stands for. But yeah. like that... That, that, you know, just listening to you talk about it and I'm like, man, how, you know, having somebody that's whole role is to go, what do we need to be doing today yeah. to be relevant in a year? Now, to be relevant. I'll take it even deeper. Really, this is a business continuity function. It's a risk management function because mm-hmm. if the business is, you know, BAU, we have our supply chain figured out, right? As a part of those risk management concerns, as you should have been practicing for a pandemic, you should also be practicing for a technological or some other form of disruption by having that futurist role combined with your risk management and your business continuity team. So you can really start to plan for the disruptions, right? Because nothing's going to stay the same. Pretty much every industry I can think of has been completely revolutionized in some way in the last 20 to 50 years. And even televisions are dying out, right? Even cable television is dying. Like they never thought that would happen. Radio, like all these industries have, you know, experience a huge surge in transition and growth. The funny thing is, it's all led by the people. So if they don't understand who their customers are, who the people are that's using this tool, right? People need to get around transportation until someone figures out quantum transportation. We still need to get around. And even then, there'll probably be an app for it, right? But everything is done through our phones in the palm of our hand. This is how we engage with the world now. And that means that has this phone has immense capability to change, pivot, control, and alter these experiences. So Uber and Lyft didn't have much work to do. They easily had access to a million people. You know, Peyton, your father, like, your father had to work to garner business locally. 1-800-Flowers didn't. It just it had to do a couple ad campaigns and get the number out there. And it's so easy to remember. It was just and all they had to do, do marketing. They didn't have to own any flower shops or own any or know anything all about centers. flowers in the first place. And yeah. if I'm not mistaken, the website is still called 800 Flowers. Mm-hmm. And I'm oh, yeah. in 20 years, years kids can be like, "What's 800? What is why? Is why this- is that even a thing? 
Yeah. Why, why are there numbers in this way? Well, that's the cyclical nature of it. You mentioned television and how streaming revolutionized it. Another example was the Roku my friend gave me like 12 years ago. And he's like, yeah, it's like, I don't know, you plug it in and then there's like things and you pick apps. It's like TV, but you pick. And I was like, what the, again, what the hell? You, what? Yeah. Like, yeah. What are you talking about? But what's funny is how many people make jokes about sitting there making food and it gets cold before you find your Netflix thing. Yes. And how for a, a whole generation, the idea of curated entertainment is a novelty. Yeah. But then it's like, yeah, I mean, there were people 50 years ago who knew mom, dad, and family were sitting down at 8 p.m. They wanted to watch primetime sitcoms on Thursdays. And we're still conditioned for that now. Star Trek streaming still drops on Thursdays like it did when yeah. I was three years old. Sure. You know, and it's just I, this cyclical nature of evolution of it. It's interesting. Absolutely. I mean, that was and that was a time when the television stopped showing content after 10, 10 p.m. It was static. Yeah. There was nothing. There. Go do something. Right. But that's why Facebook, I mean, that's why Netflix introduced the play something feature, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. they knew people were ending up with what we call decision fatigue. It was too many mm -hmm. options. So especially during the pandemic, but they hit a huge surge in business during the pandemic. Now they're struggling a little bit, but it's, it's that constant evolution. Like to the, to the point you just made transportation, entertainment all of these things will be a constant but how they're delivered will shift right soon we'll all be wearing vr glasses and going to the concert in vr as, you know i can't wait VR. for AR, ar glasses man yeah. <laughs> i can't wait for i know it's buying, the future. It's like buying real estate in the metaverse already yeah, happening already like, you know? can't wrap their head around it but somebody just recently was paying two million dollars a lot in the metaverse like yes yeah. it's, it's 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 crazy so but these are things that i think we need to be more open-minded to and that was a that was a cool thing that you made like that you're, you know, whatever the hippocampus in your current state and your future state and that connection being weak, but I'm sure it's not like a muscle or anything else. It is something you can train and condition yourself to be more open-minded too, right? You can make it. It's like practicing things. When you practice and you practice those connectors and synapses, it's just quicker how yep. you progress and you make those connections. So that's awesome. I would honestly love to have a part two, like JT part two on this topic in the future i would love to do that that's okay. my future i'm predicting it right now is we're gonna have a part two with jt so i, I put it. that name it, but claim it on there. i'll, I'll claim that i'll claim the basquiat we'll be good to go perfect with our last couple of minutes here let's end with some fun because i want to get to know you just a little bit better Payne, what do you say let's pepper them with some questions some this or that or maybe give them some uh let's get to know them a little bit better so cue up a couple i've got a few okay. so some questions these are the hard hitters these are the ones we really want to know what is your guilty fast food pleasure? Like what you, Popeye, you're going to Popeye's chicken, Popeye's chicken sandwich. That is what I'm talking about. Uh, when was the last time you had Popeye's chicken sandwich? That's a good about one. About two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. You've been I'm good wanted, though lately. I'm on a purge till my birthday. Yeah. So no no more of that. All right. All right. When's your birthday? July 18th. Good. You passed. Uh, <laughs> number, let's go. Favorite, favorite ice cream. Oh my goodness. Um pecan, believe it or not. Is what? Pecan. Butter pecan. Oh, oh, that's pecan. delicious. Yes, I, very, I feel like it's an old person's ice cream, but I love it. Yeah, oh, oh, this is good. good. Oh, oh, oh. That. Coffee or tea? Uh tea. Good call. Me too. I'm a tea guy. Favorite hobby. Okay, so I just picked up golf. So that would say is my favorite at the moment. Because I'm spending all my time in dedication learning that sport. All right. I like it. What is the superpower you wish you had most? Uh, I don't know the word for it, but to make 
copies of myself so I can do more throughout the day. Like multiple man. Duplication. Very cool. Yes. I like it. If what I can be got? here washing the car, going out on different sales meetings, if I can have multiple versions of myself going doing things, I would love it. Well, you love multiple man is an X-Man uh, villain and possible ally. And he actually uh, will go off and do stuff, live years at a time. And when he reintegrates, he gets the sum of all of those experiences. Ooh, so he, can, yeah. he was like a lawyer and a private investigator and a superhero and a husband and father. And he comes back together like five years later and he's one dude again. Oh, that's, see, I've always visioned it more like a Dr. Manhattan where it's, oh, yeah. you know, this oh, kind, kind of, of you with his consciousness where you are aware of what yes. the other version of you is doing at all times. I like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Without the anime head, I got an anime during the pandemic, and Naruto, which is a pretty popular one, he has that where he can like duplicate, and then when he does it, he'll actually train all of his little copies will train. When they come back together, he gets the total growth that each of them had compounded, Ooh. so he can actually grow faster by learning. So I could definitely see JT just completely separating into a bunch of JTs and like reading stuff and like going to conferences oh, yeah. and then coming back together, and he's just a super. He's just like. He's his own think tank. He doesn't need anyone else. It's just him. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite ones we asked before was zombie apocalypse or alien invasion. Alien invasion. No question, right? There's a chance yeah. of victory and some cool new tech. I like that. Absolutely. Okay. I love, it. I love it. What technology are you most excited about? Sadly, it's AR, VR. Yeah. Yeah. Well, AR. I want to be able to walk around, have net, watch Netflix, and do other things. There's a really cool novel that came out last year. I'll have to think of the top. I'll put it in the notes. But where they live in a city where all the buildings are like geometric. They have restrictions on how to build them because every person wears glasses and they can be in whatever world they want. And they're overlaid generic like gray brick buildings. So you're in Mordor or Harry Potter or whatever you want to live in. And then everything you're going into is catered to you. And I think nice. – but I mean, yeah, you look, Richard, you look at your refrigerator and it automatically shows you with a camera what's in there and you click milk and by looking to the right twice and all that's it's it's coming, man. It's the big oh, one. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to read that. Yeah, it's cool. I'll I'll try to okay. email the book title. It was really cool. And then somebody gets murdered and the guy has to take off his glasses to unravel the murder and live in the okay, real I'm world. I'm buying that right now because I'm looking it's for pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, but I think you know, just to piggyback on that for two yeah. seconds, I think that's the where we're moving towards, like this personalized world where you can see what you want to see, how you want to see it. Now, there's some concerns with that, with as opposed sure. as, as opposed to, I'm sorry, uh, when it can, kind of comes to objective truth. But we are very much living in a world that everything will be tailored, edited, and curated for our perspectives and our um, preferences. Mm -hmm. All right, last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Hold on. So that is actually my wife quote in um, James Allen, as, as a man thinketh, is a book. And I don't want to butcher it because I feel like I will. So I'm going to pull it up here because, of course, I have a spreadsheet full of all of my favorite quotes. Who doesn't have that, right? Who doesn't? Yep. Think strongly, attempt fearlessly, and accomplish masterfully. One more time. Think strongly, attempt fearlessly, and accomplish masterfully. I love it. And I don't think we could end on a bigger, better note. So let's <laughs> do it. JT, thank you for being here. We're definitely going to have you come back. You oh, are a great interview. You're an exceptional storyteller. Thank you. And I look forward to our friendship continuing Absolutely, to grow. Man. Yes, great to meet you. Thank you, gentlemen. You guys have a great weekend, okay? You too, buddy. You Thanks same. so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, he is fascinating. You were correct. He
crushed it. Absolutely crushed it. And you guys, I mean, I love it because you guys were, you were on the same wavelength. So that kind of stuff is always exciting for me. And uh, yeah. Yeah, this was a Richard guest, and I'm so glad you stumbled on the JT. And I do hope what, what maybe for for I want obviously we want an update on him for our, our second podcast with him, but maybe we have like 15, 20 minute coffee clashes individually, and then he like future visions just us. He does like the the thing where he like projects out what we're going to be in ten years. I just want to see his thoughts, like read our virtual tarot cards, if you will. Would be the cool thing about that, I think, is most people are terrified of the future, like having their life disrupted, and the amount of excitement he brings to the potential changes is something that's like, I need more of that, right? I need more of that because I need to be able to put that positive spin, like how optimistic he is about it, and going, no, no, no these are good things. There's opportunities there. Let's think about it. So there's some fearlessness in there. I love All it. Right. Well, that was fantastic. Richard, it has been fun. We're going to go. Always fun. Always a pleasure. For today. Uh, for sure. We'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. Yeah, we'll see you guys uh, next week. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs>